Hey everybody, welcome to Podcast of the Galactic Heroes. Welcome back, even, some might say. Uh, we're doing Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. Well, it's it's actually called something different now, right? Because we're in season two. Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex Second Gig. Second Gig, that's what it it's is. Just okay, two. yeah, yeah. I don't know why they it's, it. it's something else. If we add another colon to this thing, I'm going to explode. I will say it's very annoying trying to look up stuff for the show and getting 2045 as well. So mm, it's like, even better. No, no, not that one. Not that one. Oh, God. Yeah, they remade it again, didn't they? Didn't they yeah. remake it like twice by now? Uh, so 2045 is actually a continuation of the same universe. Um that we're in right now, the Sandmill Complex okay. one. You're thinking of Arise, which was a remake. Uh, that one's not good. <laughs> a bad okay. remake. Well, regardless, we're not watching that shit. <laughs> we're watching episodes four, five, and six of uh, season two of Ghost in the Shell. Uh, kind of interesting episodes. They, they get a lot of stuff. They get some stuff set up, and there's like a lot of world building that I have a feeling will be very relevant down the line. Absolutely. Yeah, stuff's moving. We we learn about a major city, a major metropolitan area in this one. Mm-hmm. We also uh, meet also, definitely not a bad guy. <laughs> True. <laughs> I don't understand why you would think he's a bad guy. Just because he has a the completely most... warped and twisted face. <laughs> The most villain-coded motherfucker <laughs> of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, I'll, like it, we're going to find out why, and I'll actually be ashamed of Word Indeed, but yeah, this guy is built from like the ground up to be a nasty man. So, Code is he a turns good out boy. To, and also, he's just such a conniving little shit. Yes. <laughs> like, we see him three times, and every time, like... You can expect if he doesn't have his hands on something, his hands should be steepled because this fool is plotting <laughs> yes. all, at yeah. all times. Yes. I love yeah. the introduction Jesus to this Christ. guy as an aside, but we'll get to that. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. episode yeah, yeah, four. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of cool world building. There's like a lot of little one-off statements that uh, everyone just kind of brushes aside as like yeah. a thing we all know about. Yeah. But really gives you a lot of world building. There's like one moment in particular, and I want to say it was episode six where. Togusa just says something in passing to the chief and they have like a yep. tiny aside which is like whoa that's a really and big deal totally though and then just totally falls back. off yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the well, uh, show's pretty well, good about doing that and like just like hinting at things that may be and then kind of explaining them later mm-hmm. on so mm-hmm. yeah so episode four we see a morning shot of the Nihama refugee district again it's the kind of island that's off by itself and uh, a lot of derelict broken down buildings skyscrapers that have been abandoned etc uh, we see military trucks um, driving around, and there's uh, choppers, and there's military people in the choppers. Um, we get the title card. It's Natural Enemy. Um, we see an aircraft carrier. There's a radio voiceover saying that like armed refugees have a think tank, and there's a pilot inside one of these assault helicopters. Think like an Apache or something. Um, is getting ready for takeoff. And he um, is not looking too great. Yeah, he's super sweaty. Uh, Control asks him about. He's like, "Your heart rate's really high. Are you okay?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm okay." And we Shut see, the like, fuck up. Yeah, we see like an inside shot of like something in his bloodstream, um, which won't be a problem later, I'm sure. No. Yeah, but he mentions um, like offhand, like this is a military exercise, but I have felt like this is going to be my first time actually firing live ammunition. So he's kind of pumped about it or I guess nervous about it. It's one of those where I could see this being either way. He knew what was wrong and was trying to hide it 
or also he just thought it was nerves and because like if you've ever been in like a super high pressure situation sometimes it can feel like you're dying yeah (laughs) like if you're about to do a very big match at like uh you know some competitive event oh my god yeah like i've never had my legs just fall out from under me when I went to stand up until then like it's wild yeah so I I could see it being either way it later on it they claim he like you know uh was like aware of it and hiding some issues the question then becomes is that part of the cover-up as well like you know there's yeah there's so much going on yeah Mm. so we see kind of like a military montage here there's a lot of special forces guys like repelling out of helicopters breaking in and clearing rooms you know your standard military things a lot of wow Um, cool helicopter yeah they're they're shooting some cyborgs inside and eventually they find their think tank um, which is a robot tank that looks kind of like the one from the movie the ghost in the shell movie yes big lad yeah so the chopper pilot's flying around in his helicopter and he gets locked down by the tank and he starts kind of panicking for a second and commands ask about your heart his heart rate he's like oh your heart rate's really high you're getting nervous and he's like clearly agitated in the cockpit so he starts shooting at the tank he shoots some missiles etc i think one of the things he says is he's like he's like how the fuck do you expect me to be calm when this alarm keeps going off, man? Like, he's, like, a little on edge. But then, yeah, as soon as, like, the computer's like, are you sure you're doing okay? And it's, like, beeping repeatedly. He's Shut like, the fuck up, Clippy. beeping so much, dude. <laughs> some bad UX design in the helicopters is constantly oh, yeah. beeping. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he shoots some missiles at the tank, and then we see, like, an internal shot of his bloodstream again. Something goes pop in the inside, and oops, now there's blood coming out of his mouth, and he starts gasping for air and just dies in the cockpit. I hate it when that happens. Yeah. Um, The helicopter starts spinning out of control, but we see like a shot of like the AI inside, like start flipping some switches and then like the helicopter kind of just recovers and starts flying off. Um, The control people back on the aircraft carrier tell the military commanders there is like, hey, yeah, this guy just died in his cockpit. That's not good. The AI took it over. That's okay, though. It seems your heart has stopped. Would you like help? Yeah. It's funny because I think one of the uh, radio people like tell him that it's like your heart rate stopped. Is that okay? I guess it's, you know, like, did our machine break or did you break? Like, it, yeah. It's a fair question to ask in a situation, but it does sound very funny. There's an old engineering yeah. adage, uh, only have one or three sensors. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> anyway, um, they try to do, uh, they send out a signal to the helicopter for, to the AI to like recall it. So it comes back to the aircraft carrier, uh, but it doesn't. It starts flying around and he thinks this order is an external attack. Like it's still in attack mode. So it thinks like, oh, this is bad information. Someone trying to trick me. Got to protect my pilot. Yeah. My pilot corpse. Since the pilot's cyber brain is still technically active, it thinks the pilot is still alive. So it's just ignoring the return order. So we um, see like people realize that this is an alert. This is not supposed to be happening. So they send out like orders for all the rest of the military personnel to stand down. And back on the aircraft carrier, we see some other, uh, the same model attack helicopters just randomly take off and there's no pilots in there. Neat. Um, we cut over to the defense agency. We see Aramaki meeting uh, Kabuto, which is his friend who's back in the first episode of the first season. He's popped um, up a few times, yeah. Yeah, he has a defense department job someplace, I believe is what it was. Yeah. And so he ribs Aramaki for sticking his nose in things again. And so they sit down at a cafe and Kab- Kabuta says that um, they've been lying to the media. They're saying that this is just a refueling exercise, but really it's a secret live fire training exercise for the military in preparation for the new refugee policy that's coming up. 
Which, you know, that's a line to drop. Yeah, I mean, it's not something you really want to tell the media that, hey, we're doing live fire exercises downtown where the refugees are to kick them out. Oops. So, Aramalki starts asking about the helicopters. Um, they kind of just casually say, oh, yeah, they're not the ones from the American Empire, but they're JDSA ones um, called Gigabachis. And they got this new AI. It's really cool. And completely um, hack proof. Completely hack proof. Yeah, the outside hacking didn't happen on it. Um, they think that the pilot's death is an accident, but they're not really sure. Um, the chief thinks it's fishy because the chief thinks everything is fishy. It's his job. Yeah. And we see kind of like an interstitial shot of Section 9 van heading across that lawn bridge to the refugee district. So the major and the rest of them are on their way over there. Um, we get a brief recap about the pilot's death and how the AI refused to stand down. And the apparently the helicopter hacked other... I don't know if it hacked or just like activated other choppers that were on the aircraft carrier to come join it because it thought it was being hacked. And so like apparently it got like six or seven of these things from other military bases all over the country to just take off randomly and come follow it around. Everyone had to shut the Wi-Fi down on these military bases because their helicopters started leaning on them. <laughs> this is what happened when you extend the internet of things to helicopters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, we see a shot of, I don't know, a dozen of these helicopters circling around this radio tower in the middle of the refugee logistic. And that's all they're doing right now. They're just chilling. Yeah. Aramaki asks if it's uh, cyber terrorism. Uh, Caputa says that maybe they're not really sure the military intel uh, intelligence is looking into the AI support staff scene if maybe they had anything to do with it, but they still really don't have answers. Um, Aramaki also asks about refugee terrorists, military defectors, hedonist people's movement. Um, these are all dead ends. They just kind of fill some time up here with random shit of what they think it may be. God bless the hedonist movement. I don't even know what that's supposed to be about. I think it's just a <laughs> one-off thing. <laughs> Aramaki's just making shit up now. <laughs> yeah, so the top brass uh, think it's an accident. And um, the only problem is that since these helicopters are circling the radio tower right now, they're concerned about how the refugees are going to take it because this is very antagonizing. I mean, this does seem pretty scary when a bunch of military helicopters just circle around you. Yeah. Um, so we cut to a shot of the major in traffic on the bridge. Apparently, the local cops that like guard the refugee district aren't letting the JSDF in there at all. I don't know why. Weird. Um, they're stuck in traffic. She tells uh, the chief, the Togasa and Ishikawa are checking out the pilot's home and that the rest of the team's got to stand by because they're just waiting for orders, I guess. Uh, back at the cafe, Kabuda says that he shouldn't be seen with the chief, that it's like it's a, like bad news for him to be seen with Aramaki because I guess Aramaki is kind of like toxic at this point. I don't know. Yeah. And so uh, Aramaki ribs him and is like, you're still trying to move up the world? He says something like, oh, I can't you know, live your life for the way you live. And uh, he just walks out of the coffee shop without paying, which is kind of funny because it shows Aramaki look at the check. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, bud. So a new guy comes up to Aramaki, hands him a card. Uh, this guy has the longest title I've ever seen. Cabinet Intelligence Service Strategic Influence Investigation Commissioner Representative Aid. Uh, Hitori Agoda. And, Bless uh, the, you. Also, yes. we get that shot of like, you know, you can see his whole body except for his head while this whole introduction is being made. Mm-hmm. And um, Gota actually corrects him and says that it's Kazandu Gota. People can't say my name right, but I don't blame them. It's kind of a strange name. It's an actual name you see because it's a unique name for unique face. This dude starts chewing the scenery the second <laughs> he comes in. 
He's gonna be in a random like closet with a computer in two episodes time and he is still going to be talking about how awesome and amazing he is. And he's uh, definitely not a bad guy. <laughs> I would definitely cast Nick Cage, like coked up 90s Nick Cage <laughs> yes, as this dude yes, in a movie version. Yes, oh God, yeah. Yeah, he, the like face off Nick Cage, he could shoot mm-hmm. us anyway. Uh, so we do get a, a well, finally get so a like, shot. To, to, to give like a little uh, like kind of a description of his face too it's like if you like had lost some skin like towards the back of your scalp and they had to like pull your skin back to like you know get get it sealed up more or less like the skin on the side of his face is just like really pulled back so he has one eye that like is always open and looks to be like a fake eye like a glass eye or something right cybernetic probably considering it's ghost in the shell but Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Um, but it's only on one half of his face too so like it, it, you can he's kind of got like, like a, a scar face thing going yeah 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 he has like a long scar also like down like from above his eyebrow to across his nose and yeah the back of his head also just has a huge scar slash burn mark just where he is he's bald completely bald but yeah, just to the... let it be known he's not overstating it when he says no. he has a unique face that is one of a kind that you will not forget like yeah. it is it is partially like because it's a little horrifying but like it I almost like the way he leans into it, though. He's just mm. like, yeah, I know my face is a little fucked up. I don't care. But it comes <laughs> like, up it in, a, in episode six as well. Some other random person describing him. And it's like, ah, yep. Well, that is the thing. I mean, we do. This is the future where most people are prosthetic. He could have a prosthetic body with a normal face. He's but choosing he, not to. He chooses Absolutely. like to stay yeah. with this face. Whatever happened to him, he's like, this is my face. I ain't changing it. I'm going to lean in, buddy. Yep. Yeah, he also, like, just the way he carries himself, he's very self-assured and, like, confident yep. in his own uh, intelligence in every scene he's in. Yes. And I, I, we may skip over some of that when we describe what he's talking about. But, yeah, he's very cocksure of himself. Mm. So Aramaki is not impressed or intimidated. He just kind of eyebrows the guy or whatever. Why are you talking to me, sir? <laughs> yeah. And he asks what's up. Um, apparently Goto wants Section 9 to help him with the choppers, and he wanted to meet the, the chief in person. So we get a cut of them. Um, he's in the chief's car, and they're en route to the residential district. Uh, the cabinet intelligence service um, works under the chief of uh, the chief cabinet secretary, whose name is Takahura, who is the guy with the white hair that we saw two episodes ago. Right. She's a, he's the number two to the prime minister. Yep. Um, their job is foreign and domestic intelligence gathering, uh, signet, and propaganda, pretty much. Definitely not a bad guy. <laughs> Again, I think you're typecasting this dude. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so Goto wants Aramaki in Section 9 to work with uh, him as if this was a direct order, even though it's not really, but kind of, you know. You know, hush, hush. And Aramaki's not very happy about this, but yeah. can't really do anything. Yeah, so they enter the refugee district, and we see some shots of the refugees are clearly agitated by the choppers flying around. Um, we see why shots. Why? I don't know. But yeah, just and we're at this point. It's what probably like ten choppers, something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we see the choppers refueling. Um, there's like two big tanker choppers up there refueling the attack ones, and the major's on the roof nearby with a uh, Bato, Paz, and Boma. They start talking about the chopper specs. Bato says that um, those tankers can keep a Jigabachi, which is the attack ones, up there for like 10 hours. But they're splitting fuel, so they think it's maybe less than an hour. They're not sure because these are military choppers that are top secret. And they also say, I like the tanker's going to crash last because it has all the fuel and it's going to keep getting lighter. 
I also like the detail when they're describing the uh, when Bato's talking about the fuel consumption of the of the helicopters. He he starts by saying. Oh, one of those things? Like, when he's talking about the refueling helicopter, he's like, oh, yeah, that carries enough fuel in it to keep a car going for, like, six days. Yeah. Or, you know, one of these military helicopters, like, ten hours, maybe? Like, a real guzzler? Yeah. <laughs> like, so, the energy consumption of these vehicles is fucking outlandish. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. even know if you can put that much energy into helicopter blades without them just exploding. <laughs> like, it is... I think you said the smokes. cars were, like, 10 years, which kind of leaves credence yeah. that these cars are probably hybrids or something like that. But, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Tachikomas are there on the roof, too, um, and they start asking if the uh, choppers or AIs like them. Uh, Bato says that they're supposed to have humans on board and the AIs are really more for support and backup. But the Tachigoma brings up the fact that they're thinking of flying on their own right now. So maybe the work conditions are bad and they're on strike. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. Uh, the Tachikoma's like, if they don't behave and go home, we're going to have to fight them, right? And Bato's like, yeah, of course. And the Tachikoma's like, well, they're our natural enemies. And then they think for a second, it's like, we all have stomach well, aches. Can we go home? Specifically, <laughs> they realize they're like, oh, those are like anti-tank helicopters. Yeah. Like us tanks, right? And Bato's like, yeah, like you tanks. And they're we're sick. We all need to go home now. Bye-bye. <laughs> left our oven on. And Bottle's just like, get back here, you little shit. <laughs> it's also, I, I like the uh, design of these helicopters because, like, it looks like a normal attack helicopter, but, like, the back part of it, the back of the fuselage, swings down to have a massive gun at the end, kind of like a wasp stinger. Yes. So they kind of look like, yeah, like a tarantula hawk or something that attacks yeah. actual spiders. Yeah. Which is a cool design choice, but... Yeah. The Natural other thing I like about enemies. this suit too is <laughs> yeah. it's one of the first times that we see the crew uh interacting and like talking with Tachikomas mm-hmm. after their, you know, reclassification as people on the team. <laughs> Employees. And uh it it's nice seeing everyone be a little more at ease with each other. Like Bato's yeah. just talking to them and they're talking back to Bato. They're just peopling at each other, which is nice. Like That's obviously cool. the Tachikomas are very childlike comparatively to Bato, but they just get to talk like they're people, which is unbelievably nice after, you know, a whole season of them being afraid of talking like they're people too much. <laughs> yeah, it's also like the way they speak is more natural and I guess less uh, flippant, I guess, than they were in the previous season. Like towards the end of the previous season, they just kind of started doing what they wanted to by themselves. But now, like they're actually yep. trying to be part of a team. Yeah, they are. So. They are employees mm-hmm. and they are going to work well with the team and get a good performance review. <laughs> Although more. sometimes they are still baby. <laughs> So they hear an explosion in the distance and they look over and I guess the Japanese self-defense force got too close because there's a tank on the ground that was shot by one of the choppers. So there's like kind of a no-go zone around the tower that they're flying around. We cut over to Togusa and Ishikawa. They're at the pilot's house. It's a really shitty apartment. Uh, There's beer cans everywhere, a bunch of like army plastic model stuff, a bunch of tactical bullshit. Um, They are this kind of guy around. Yeah, I have to kind of describe this correctly. So... Uh, Togusa and Ishikawa are outside just kind of looking at the apartment and we see the inside of the apartment but there's some men that aren't them um, walking around on the inside of the apartment one of them takes something from a desk and then plants something else that looks exactly the same and that has a strange logo next to it and this logo is like a diamond shape with an infinity symbol on the inside yeah we're Um, gonna call these guys the men in black in episodes 5 and 6 so these are all just men in black yeah these are weird men that we will not see In black again. suits. <laughs> yeah, so these men leave the apartment and lock the door behind them. And then, like, as they're walking down the apartment stairs to the first floor, they pass Togusa and Ishikawa walking up. We cut to the roof where Section 9 is. The chief is meeting them in person with Goda there. 
the major jokes about how the prime minister's keeping him on a short leave. The chief says that they're going to have jurisdiction to go in and fix this chopper situation, but they have to follow Goda's orders in order to play nice. So, of course, Bacho balks about this. He doesn't want to be a government lapdog. Goda starts just kind of info dumping stuff about the choppers, just kind of to demonstrate that he knows what he's talking about. Goda totally ignores them and just goes on with it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he says how, like, if they crash soon, the refugees, like, they're going to crash soon because they got to run out of gas. And if they do, the refugees are going to go crazy. So the major decides to parlay and play nice and ask what his plan is. Um, we cut to them further into the city in the Tachikomas. Bato asked why the major agreed to these stipulations, and she's like, regardless of what causes inf- incident terrorism or not, these choppers are going to fall, and that's going to cause a terrible situation. So they got to do something about it. We don't really have a choice, yeah. yeah. Um, so we see a brief shot of Saito. He's setting up with a sniper rifle on the side of a building someplace. Um, he's kind of hanging out the side of a Tachikoma, just as it- it's really funny the way he's positioned. Yeah, it's just <laughs> chilled on the side of a building like a spider. Um, the other I like it too because it like cloaks up, but you can still see like the internal struts that are keeping the um, like the lid up. Yeah, and you can still see him obviously because he's not camoed. So there's just like the head shoulder, the head and shoulders of a guy, and a big fucking gun <laughs> floating <laughs> in the middle of the air on the side of this building. Yeah. So the other section nine Tachikomas is go stealth and decide to go into towards the danger zone where the tower is at. Um, some music starts up here at Cyberbird. It's probably the best song on the soundtrack. I love the song. Um, they go in up to the radio tower, kind of cloaked until they're like right on top of basically where the Jigabachis are flying around in circles. Uh, they uncloak, get their attention, and then kind of just start Spider-Man swinging away with their ropes. And we get a sweet chase scene. Yeah, the choppers, of course, take up chase. Uh, the Tachikomas start parkouring through the city. Uh, the major notes during this that they're kind of acting exactly as Gota has predicted. And we see a shot of Saito getting specs on like the cockpit and the helicopter and how that all works. So their whole idea is he needs to line up a shot that goes through the side of the helicopter so it hits the pilot's brain, killing him. And this will t- apparently make everything work. Killing me instantly. Yeah. So there's more montage stuff with the Tachikomas flying around. Eventually the Major sets up a trap where it gets a Jigabachi to fly right over her. And she uses the uh, sticky webs to just slow it down. And so, um, as it does, as it's being slowed down, the, um, I lost myself in my notes here. 37. Oh, thank you. Yeah. As, as it's getting slowed down, the Jigabachi is like, fuck this shit. And it's like gun comes out and just shoots up her Tachikoma. I don't know how she doesn't get hurt, but she eventually like bails out and grabs the line from the side of the Tachikoma herself and just like starts trying to wrestle it down. It's kind of weird. Cause I don't understand how this helicopter that has, you know, Thousands of pounds of thrust can't just pick her up, but... Pick her up or just break the concrete. But it, it does feel very, like, similar to the movie where it's, like, a ridiculous feat. Yeah, I was thinking that. I'm like, is yeah. she going to rip her arm out <laughs> doing this, like, in the movie? I was like, is this going to be another reference? Yeah, it feels like that. She's the She eventually stops it, like, at the edge of the building. She, like, has her feet against the wall. So the Jigabachi turns around to shoot at her. Uh, but right as it's about to shoot, she releases the wire, so it kind of pitches up, which gives it enough clearance for Saito to get a shot off. So we see the bullet hit the pilot. Um, she reacts and pulls out her pistol like that's got to do anything to stop the chopper. <laughs> but um, inside, we see the AI start flipping switches some more because it takes the order and then returns home. It's like, my pilot is dead. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. Let's go home, everybody. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so we got to the chief and the major talking to Goda afterwards. Um, he's super happy that he was right. <laughs> Nailed uh, it. 
Yeah, he's, he was thinking that if the pilot cyberbrain was destroyed, the AI would have to obey the order, so that's why the sniper... Um, he's also very happy on himself to involve Section 9 because he uh, put trust into them and that trust paid off, so he's happy about that. Um, the JDSF, he also says something like he, this uh, prevented the JDSF from having to kill one of their own. And Bato starts popping off saying, like, you made Saito do the dirty work, but Saito's like, I'm cool with it because I'm a cool man. This is all I do. <laughs> it's yeah. a living. He was already dead, though. They, they didn't know that? I guess they didn't. I mean, his heart stopped. So oh, yeah, his heart they, stopped. His heart was yeah. zero. Just weird, yeah. Dead. His heart stopped for a long period of time, and he didn't respond to anything. That yeah, seems like a pretty... Fair. At some point, they should have realized, like... Dead adjacent. Or at the very least, if it wasn't in his control, he maybe would have, like, stood up and waved his arms around and said, Ah, oh, shit, guys. The helicopters <laughs> are going wild. Bro, like, my helicopter. <laughs> So um, Goto eventually leaves, and the chief thanks the team. He's a note that says, like, all the choppers made it back. Um, we protected property. Yeah. And as they, like, roll out, you see shots of the refugee kids throwing rocks at the tanks and stuff. Um, the major then asks about Togusa's report. Like, what did he find? Uh, apparently, they found a bunch of heart medication at home, and they kept it hidden from the superiors. Um so the chief was wondering, like, well, was Goto wrong? Was this all just an accident? Like, did he just not tell his superiors he had heart problems? Uh, the major's like, well, there's no way to be sure. And the chief is suspicious because he's always suspicious. It's his job. Uh, but he does bring up a good point that the cabinet information secretary ha had all the information at the right time and that the JDSF was kind of just agitating the refugees. He feels that this, like, may be a crime that's happening someplace. His crime sense is tingling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we cut back. And also, like... A few things are just a little too convenient. Yeah. Like, especially now that we saw that they were fucking around in that dude's apartment before Togusa and uh, and the person Ishikawa. Togusa was with got there. Ishikawa, thank you. Uh, before they had gotten in. Because remember the scene they had shown, like, the men in black farting around in there mm -hmm. before they got in? So, you know, if you were trying to cover up some kind of weird blood machine magic that you were doing probably not a bad way to do it <laughs> sneak no. in put some heart medication and be like oh he was just hiding a heart condition he had yeah totally normal heart attack nothing nothing screwy yeah so the last shot of the episode is uh Togusa and ishikawa they're about to leave the guy's apartment because i guess the actual police got there um and Togusa's looking around and he kind of notices the uh weird infinity logo on the ground but he just heads out because it means nothing to him yes this is going to show up a whole bunch soon but yeah I just bring it up because, yeah, the logo will show up a lot. And yep. And it Ghost was planted. In the shell, Ghost in the Shell fucking loves putting logos on places for crime. Oh, they yeah. love that crime shit. logos they, are amazing. All of season one was like, yo, what if we put this fake Starbucks shit everywhere? <laughs> 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 I mean, thematically, I have a that feeling makes I'm going to see. Yep. Oh, for sure. It super did. But... They're doing it again this season, which is very <laughs> funny to me. Like, the first time is fine. The second time, it's like, oh, no, I think there's going to be another ghost in the shell. And then they look at the camera. Damn, they do that later, don't they? In this episode, <laughs> anyway, yep, episode five. Yeah. <laughs> which I have titled Goon Project, Kill the Prime Minister. <laughs> I'll start the wiki. <laughs> So we open on the Jejima Refugee District where Kayabuki, the Prime Minister, is making a visit to the War Memorial and also an inspection. It's kind of shot as a news report saying this is her first trip to the Refugee District for all this. 
Um, a news report that, that basically goes on to say that she's looking to pass laws that limit refugees' abilities to come to the country and get jobs. So, like, this is kind of clearly just bullshit that she's coming out here. It's a PR thing. Yeah, pure pure PR stunt. Um, she gets into her limo with, like, a bouquet that someone handed to her and a note falls out of it with, Hey, look, it's that same emblem we saw earlier. Um, we get a quick shot that says Refugee Liberation Organization, but that's kind of all we see about it. And there's a lot of focus on them not really being able to understand what the logo means in this episode. Yeah, so I just kind of mentioned that here. I guess this is like, I don't know, something with the Japanese language where like obviously the different uh, kanji and characters can mean different things based on the context. So mm-hmm. like they can't read what it says because there's no context to it. Yeah, like it doesn't really make sense all these characters together. We'll we'll get a bunch of talk about that eventually. Um, back at the PM's residence, Aramaki's being told that it's a death threat and they don't know who's doing it. Like his boss is there and a bunch of the other cabinet members. Meltman. <laughs> Meltman is there. Uh, also, weirdly, this emblem has been showing up in a whole bunch of terrorist activities, but none of the events have anything to do with each other. Like, it's totally different terrorist organizations, all vaguely refugee-related, but, like, you know, not with any sort of clear yeah, connection. Yeah, often with, like, completely contradictory goals. But yeah. The only thing linking all these, like, incidents is that logo. Yep. Especially because, like, it hasn't been leaked to the media or anything at this point. Yeah, so they're like, it's not copycats. Nobody knows about this logo, but it's showing up everywhere. And they're like, yeah, it's a laughing man again. (laughs) Which I I do like. I love that their first concern, too, is they're like, is there any way this could be a series of copycat crimes? Any chance? Like, they're just like, please tell us it's not one of these again. And they're like, there's definitely no chance (laughs) it's one of these again. And then they turn to the camera and they're like, I think it's one of these again. <laughs> I mean, but it like, is sort of like if if that shit had just happened like a year ago, you would yeah. you would probably also be seeing the laughing man everywhere. I mean, oh, absolutely! Everyone's like, "God a, damn it, not another laughing man!" It took up a huge part of their lives and they're like, you know, for their business hours and shit. Like, yep. this is it still got fresh in their a mind. Whole bunch of them fired. That too. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. Section 9 gets put on the Prime Minister's personal security detail so that she can keep making public appearances. So, like, instead of, you know, hiding her somewhere in a bunker, she's going to keep her up her busy schedule and Section 9 are going to be bodyguards for her, which nobody's very happy with. Uh, the ministers get really cagey when the chief asks to see the letter and they're basically like, nope, nope, we're handling it, don't worry about it, which isn't suspicious at all. Yeah, the chief kind of like wants, like, Section 9 is more of an offensive force. Like, they go investigate and solve problems. But this is literally being, our wheelhouse. Yeah, but they're being like corralled onto, you know, basically babysitting duty. So, yeah. yeah, the chief's not happy about that. Yeah, like, so cut back to the whole team who are pretty unhappy about all this. Um, Togusa points out how inconsistent all of these things are, and Chief's like, yeah, but it does seem like there's something to this. Major calls it another standalone complex, pew, 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 pew. Um, We get Ishikawa, Boma, and Togusa on information duty, while everyone else gets babysitting duty. 
We then hard cut to an incredible Armel living space's apartment with nothing but a flat screen TV bolted to the wall and a guy sitting in the middle of the room with a bunch of newspapers splayed in the front of him. And the sword. And the sword, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it ties yeah. the room together. The sword on that one. Yeah. That's his Hanzo steel and he is very proud that's, of it. That's the display piece. It ties the whole room together. <laughs> Um, so a guy with, like, white blonde hair, let's call him Kirk, because he's voiced by Kirk Thornton, uh, says the death threat had no effect, uh, while watching the news that's basically talking about how Prime Minister's back in action and doing shit. Uh, he says that she paid lip service to the refugees while doing nothing for them, and that cannot stand... He pulls his sword and unsheaths it and starts doing sweet moves that really remind me of episode two while basically talking about how if you you must act on your ideals and not stop until your goal is achieved. Um, but you can't, once you start your action, you can't stop it. And, and your actions have to have a goal or they're meaningless, you know, directionless, won't go anywhere, blah, blah. And then he calls himself the individual 11. So I guess we've, we've got our villain guy. Sweet. Um, we cut to the MIB office with face because I forgot his name was Goto while I was writing most of these notes, uh, who is also researching the strange logo. This, uh, this scene is funny because he's in his own office, I guess, which kind of looks like a storage room. It's but just he... a closet with computers on the front on like the, one of the walls. Like, yeah, but he has, it's a van. he has a oh, desk. It's definitely a van. <laughs> Yeah, he has a desk, and like in front of him is like a hundred and ten inch monitor that he's sitting like six inches away from. Yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> With like a billion newspapers sitting down in front of him as well. Um, yeah, he's storybooking. He yeah, scrapbooking, I should say. Basically, he t- he talks about how he likes reading physical media and then like placing it in a physical thing, like he's doing because it sticks with him better and like basically brags about how great his personal information storage system is. Um, the guys who came in, who, who come in, like, to talk to him, say, tell him about the death threats and that Section 9's been placed on the security duty. And he's like, ah, perfect. Um, he assigns his own team to follow the prime minister and make sure that Section 9 doesn't accidentally catch their target. Like, it's very clear that they know something that Section 9 doesn't, and they really don't want Section 9 to find out anything more about this guy and catch him by mistake, basically. It should be noted that the two lackeys he's talking to also have dark suits. Yes. We got a lot of dark suits in here. Um, we head out for the... Or we go back, cut back to Section 9, where they're driving out to the, bo- to the bodyguard job. Uh, Bato thinks that they've been getting some pretty shitty jobs lately. For being a big anti-crime squad. Uh, Togasun crew uh, cut cut over to them. They haven't found anything out about this logo. And they're having a lot of trouble figuring out what it even means. Until Togas is like, well, what about like logos or literary references? Cross-reference that shit. And Ishikawa finally figures out that it's meant to be uh, read as Individual Eleven. And that the symbol was used in a book of political essays on revolution by Patrick Sylvester. I don't know if that guy's real. I should have I'm that not. Up. That is probably that is actually the one part that I didn't check up on because yeah. I did read about the actual history that's about to be covered. 
Um, so this is basically a book of 10 essays on revolutions around the world, like Che Guevara, uh, October Revolution, all sorts of different countries, uh, written by the author and uh, kind of semi-autobiographical as well. Um, but importantly for our purposes, there is a rumored 11th essay called The Individual 11 that was never published uh, because it didn't really count the May 15th incident as a true political revolution. Um, and so, like, it's the, never been published, text has never been released anywhere. You may be asking yourself, what's the May 15th incident? And, well, we'll get there. This is something um, I feel that, like, a Japanese viewer would probably have more knowledge of than, like, say, an American viewer, because it's yes. more pertinent the, the to the The show is going to give a really short-form thing there, but let it be known, it is a real thing that actually happened in the 1930s, and we'll talk about kind of how it's relevant to us soon, TM. Um, so Togusa finally remembers that he saw the logo at the end of the last episode, and also that the group from episode one was called the Individual Eleven... Um, and so they're, they're finally starting to make some progress. Back at the Prime Minister's residence, Major's giving out orders when an incredibly suspicious package walks <laughs> in. Like, a dude just comes in like, hey, I received this super suspicious package in the mail. Is there, you want me to do anything with it? There's okay. good carpentry Patrick's... work on this box. It's like dovetailed and everything. <laughs> yeah. Patrick Sylvester does not exist. There we go. Okay, okay. invented for the show. Um, we cut back to Kirk, who is in a big truck and like a delivery outfit who basically says, mull over the message for my newly awakened comrades, as he drives onto the highway and lectures us about the Individual Eleven essay. Um, he says that it, like, it's, the, it's a truly brilliant work. This whole thing is incredibly fawning over it, and that it compared the May 15th incident to no theater... Um, so we're going to get another history Japanese lesson as well, if you're not familiar. Um, he talks about how feudal Japanese warriors thought that no theater was the only true art form because it's a highly improvisational art form where every uh, performance is meant to be unique so that it captures the chaotic nature and like, you know, shows the truth of real life events through feeling that kind of thing. Everything's original. To, yeah. As opposed to a play where you memorize your lines and just spit out a pre, uh, pre-written pre form of things. Um, he then connects this back to the May 15th uprising and revolution in general, saying that like giving your life of, as a revolutionary figure is in itself a form of performance and a way to achieve immortality. Um, and it goes on for quite a bit, but we get this really neat cut of like the truck driving to kind of perfectly frame a Buddhist temple, like way in the distance on a hill. And it kind of zooms in on that as he talks about achieving immortality. I actually really like this scene and I feel like I'm not doing it justice, but yeah, it's hard to describe because he's kind of philosophically babbling for a while as like it shows the shots of him driving along the highway. And yes, the Buddhist temple is in the background and it's also kind of setting up a scene later in the episode. It, so. it will come up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, back at the PM's office, Arama, she's sitting at her desk and Aramaki is on a like he's couch a iPad. 20 <laughs> feet away playing on his iPhone. <laughs> Um, and he's, he's clearly a bit annoyed about having to do all this. She says, sorry, but he's like, nope, it's my job. 
Major walks in with the box from earlier, tries to hide it from the PM. Aramaki's like, like she's like, no, no, show it to me. And he's like, you might, you might be better if you don't see this. And she's like, uh, if you treating women gently is what leads to contempt for them. And then looks in it and goes, oh, <laughs> which is pretty great. It's like, yeah, maybe he wasn't telling you that because you're a woman, but because you don't want to see what's in the box. Gross box. <laughs> I think regardless of gender, looking in, you know, and seeing severed fingers is not the greatest. Not the greatest. <laughs> so we cut to Ishikawa saying that he can't find the content of the essay at all online. And Togusa finally asks him about what this May 15th incident even was. So we get a recap. <laughs> Cap. Uh, he fucking just May reads 15th. Wikipedia to us. Yeah. <laughs> yes, basically. Uh, now I'm going to read Wikipedia to you all. <laughs> <laughs> On May 15th, 1932, 11 naval officers assassinated the Japanese prime minister. Um, fun fact, the, in real life, they actually also planned to assassinate Charlie Chaplin, who was visiting the prime minister at the and time. And they wanted to but... do this to start a war with the United States. Yes. Like, basically, it's kind of to tell the government that they aren't really doing things the way they should be by murdering the government. Um, the thing that's more interesting for our case, though, is that after the event happened, they turned themselves into the police. And when they were put on trial, they basically spoke passionately about their love for the nation and how they're willing to face this punishment because they did it all for for the country and the people in the trial and the press and the public just sort of started to fall in love with them. Uh, Ishikawa says the court received over 350,000 petitions for clemency and even a box of 11 severed fingers was mailed to the court to basically say uh, that they would stand in for the, you know, these were just some good old boys who were doing some revolution. It should be noted um, that the reason that these uh, naval officers did the assassination is because there was like a nationalistic fervor up around the Japanese country at the time that like they wanted to be more sovereign and have more authority over themselves in the world than what was, you know, currently happening. Yeah. And so it, like it, this was a slippery slope towards the Imperial Japan becoming militaristic and the lead into World War II. Yes, it's considered yeah. an important event in the overall history of how Japan ended up where it did in World War II and doing all of the things they did in China and correctly, the Maritimes. Correctly so. Yes, yeah. because it literally is, you know, th this was basically where the military figured out that, like, oh, they could just kill the prime minister because this isn't the only time it happens in that 10-year yeah, period. Didn't they assassinate a different prime minister another time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, there, there is, I believe this period is literally called, uh, like, election by assassination or something like that <laughs> in real-life historical... Uh, terms. But anyway, um, Ishikawa basically says that overall this event signaled a shift from the democratic Japanese government to a nationalistic support for a, by a full takeover, for a full takeover by the military, basically what Kuvo was saying before. Um, and it's a bit weird that that's showing up because we cut back to the prime minister's office and she was sent 11 severed prosthetic fingers in a box. Um, Togusa fills the major in on how incredibly convenient the timing is. Like, it's literally this. Togusa, we just received 11 severed fingers. And Togusa's like, did you just say 11 severed fingers? <laughs> yeah, it's I just... just read about 11 <laughs> severed fingers being sent to another prime minister. It's, it's very fine. theatric. Oh, yeah. Um, we get a hard cut to a Buddhist temple at night. Uh, the head monk of the temple is basically leading Kirk Thornton around as he carries like a huge 
picture on his back basically saying how glad he is that it's been delivered on time. We then go to the next morning where the prime minister is at that exact same Buddhist temple to meditate. Oh no. Um, I'm sure nothing bad will happen. She's just there yeah. to look at the picture. She's like walking up the steps to the temple and in the woods next to her, some Tachikoma are sort of just like walking around on protection duty. Uh, they talk about Zen meditation and like philosophy overall. They compare yeah. it to or like Zen is not. It's interesting how Zen's not a religion. It's more of a way to detach yourself, like to talking about things of that nature. Yes, yeah. things like koans and like meditate Zen meditation and all that. Didn't they say something like it's like clearing your cash? Yes, like, they, they compare it to deleting their own data or clearing their car, their cash. Um, and then yeah, they make like a basically trying of, to separate yourself from like earthly desires and yep. you know the physical and all that. And they're like, oh yeah, I wonder if we could uh, link up with someone who's meditating and just download Enlightenment. And everyone's like, yeah, Fuck yeah. yeah. That sounds <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, so the PM is all alone in the temple with a monk meditating because this is just how she deals with it when she's having a stressful time. Um, section nine is you know garden the whole place to the gills and octocamo and shit and basically talking about well you know she's basically just asking to get killed if none of us can go in there and watch right um major's like i bato's like you know it's really selfish that she'd do this just to meditate and major's like i i think she knows just how much danger she's actually in and that's why she's doing it i mean um, bato's right though. bato is correct this is a kind of self-centered decision but hey He's just security detail. Who cares what they think? Um, Major says that at least she let them put interceptors in her eyes so that they could agree. Like, they were basically like, no, we're not doing this. But as if we can put interceptors in your eyes, that's fine. And apparently Major is the only one who actually gets the feed of it, which is sort of an interesting detail. Um... Suddenly, the uh, blonde guy from earlier, Kirk, walks in from behind the screen in in camo. So I guess that's how no one saw him come in and pulls out a sword. He yells, righteousness is on my side. Die. Do you ever think about how if he like come up behind her, he would have gotten away. He would have killed her and gotten away clean. Yeah, probably would have. He, he was in camo. No one knew. I feel it's some smugness. He was able to sneak into the room with no one seeing him. So he kind of wanted to, you know. Tell her oh, he, he was definitely like trying to be like the prime minister knows who killed him. Oh, he's he's yeah. no theatering real hardcore. Oh, here. oh yeah, but he's he's a dumbass. <laughs> mm-hmm. If he just auto camoed in and sliced her head off, he, he would have succeeded. Indeed. So uh, Kaibuki's like basically sitting there in shock while he raises up his sword, but Major busts in and shoots him up. Uh, you see all of the bullet holes, like you know they're making really penetrating hits on his body, but it doesn't actually stop him. He jumps up the giant Buddha statue here and crashes through the ceiling, making a gigantic hole in it. Um, Bato well, and the baby gets into it. Yeah, he gets into it with the major and like starts like fist fighting the major and like starting to overpower the major, which is you know one of those rare yes. sights. And then Bato comes running in, hooting and hollering, shooting and <laughs> the reinforcements show up. Yeah, and like it's so that's yeah, pretty. Yeah, yeah. Pretty clear that he's a pretty heavy hitter at this point when he jumps this out man and runs has away. Eaten, this man has eaten three plus clips <laughs> of like nine millimeter yep. armor penetrating rounds. Yeah, it's obvious yeah, he's like a full he cyborg. Is. Yeah. He also has insane ups. Yes. 
Holy this shit. This is a pretty tall temple. <laughs> I mean, Bato follows him up there, yeah. True, Bato does go after Bato him. Bato doesn't and, like, have to break through the, the ceiling, though. Like, <laughs> that dude jumped up so hard that he got that high and fucking broke the ceiling. That's True. unbelievable. And his next jump is pretty... Pretty yes, he gets up thing. onto the roof, and but like you know, Bato and the babies kind of like surround him there. He thirty foot vertical leaps and like three hundred foot horizontal leaps out into the forest off this roof, and the ta- the Tachikoma are just like, oh shit, <laughs> as he runs away. <laughs> um, we cut back inside, and Kayabuki's all right, but he's he's just fucking gone at this point. Major's like that was one seriously reinforced cyborg and aramaki's like start looking into people with military ties because you can't just get that out on the street um she's kaibuki's like well thank god you guys were here he would have killed me and major was like you know i are you i'm not actually totally sure he was here to kill you um as a dude in a black suit who looks incredibly suspicious sort of like i don't know grunts behind her and walks off screen um yeah i think this is the guy that uh that Goda told to tail them yes, previously basically. in the episode. He's, he's the one that's been tailing them the whole time, all these black suits, and he just walks away in the background, and that's the whole episode. Uh, Prime one Minister's of the not dead. cool Yay. things is the last shot of this episode, like they kind of like linger on the hole in the ceiling, and there's like a uh, mural up on the roof, yeah. Yeah. and it's a uh, like a yin-yang thing, and the hole is one of the circles. Yes, it. like it's the mural itself is not a yin-yang thing, but with the hole in the roof, it kind of yeah. makes it this... Perfect Dao symbol. I wonder symbol. if this like is symbolism. I no. can't imagine. No, God no. In this show, no. All right, moving on to episode so catch her six. in the ride. Huh? <laughs> there was only some other place that we've seen where there were different characters who were color coded in black and white, and maybe I don't know they weren't facing each other in some intro of something. I, I don't know. Nah, probably not yeah. important. Yeah. So, uh, episode six, where Togusa remembers he's a cop. Uh, <laughs> does some copping. <laughs> he actually uh, does some cop in this episode. Yes, he does detective work for once. Um, so we open with a like top-down shot of a dead body on a slab that's been like completely torn apart. It's it's just fucked. It looked like it's got hit by a bus. Yeah. Weirdly. It, it sure <laughs> did. Uh, and you can see there's there's... Um, mostly cyber parts amongst like exposed muscle tissue like this is a very highly like prosthetic guy here um there's two of the red lab techs Togusa and the chief standing around him looking at it and they've clearly been talking about it beforehand because Togusa opens with a homicide disguised as an accident and the chief's like yeah the investigators told me that he was hit with enough force to damage his brain case so yeah he got super splatted um, Togusa says, but the truck driver swears he doesn't remember anything because he was asleep at the wheel at the time, which... Nothing I, suspicious about this. I guess that's better than admitting to murdering a guy. <laughs> the lab tech says, like, they are diving that guy's cyber brain to see if he's telling yes. the truth, but they don't think yeah. they'll have anything. Yeah, they, they think he probably is telling the truth. And then they mentioned that, like, oh, our investigation into the blackmailing of the uh, energy ministry is just coming to a dead end, so we're going to learn a bit about that. Um, the Red Techs now tell us that the prosthetic body isn't cutting edge, but it's brand new, it's domestically made, and the face is custom designed, but likely hold over from when he was first cyberized. It's quite old. So this man just got some new deets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
And Togusa muses that it's very unusual for a criminal to, to keep his face. Um, so they think he was blackmailing the uh, energy ministry, but Aramaki starts talking about how it was very crude. Maybe it was just a bluff. Like, we don't really know what was happening with this. Does this guy really blackmail a ministry? Um, and that's when Togusa notices a, a strange symbol on the guy's exposed diamond brain, which is not the individual eleven one. It's the only important thing about this symbol. But I mean, yeah. it's a bit similar, though. So it's got some likeness. It's, 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 it's in a square, I think, is the yes. main thing. Yeah. And uh, so the tech is like, okay, that's the symbol for the Shinjuku ward of the old capital. Um, so we can infer that. Tokyo was maybe destroyed in the war, um, and that his cyber brain is strangely encased in glass and lead. And this is a detail that I really like because it'll—it never really—they never circle back on this, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, like where it's going with what, where the episode goes. I mean, you can mm-hmm. kind of assume where it's going when they say lead because yeah, lead's so only as soon really as they used say he, he lead-lined his brain. Yeah, but. So Aramaki then gives Tokusa the dead guy's personal effects, which includes a reporter's contact info and a wedding ring. Um, we get the title card. We're now in like a restaurant or a diner of some sort where Tokusa is meeting said reporter, um, who is explaining to him that the dead guy left him a message. Uh, and there was a very funny moment when I was watching this because the subtitle for reporter came up before the card did. So the word reporter was just floating in the middle of the screen. I was like, what? Why does it say reporter? Then the card came up and it was translating the word reporter. This is what happens when you mistime uh, your subs slightly. Mm. <laughs> it was just, I was just like, what? Um, he explains that he got a message from a public payphone in Tokyo from this guy. And it was a tape about the energy ministry. And of course, this reporter was like super skeptical of this just like random tip that came in. And uh, he's like, ah, you know, I don't know if I'm going to run this up, but... The dead guy said that he would send something that proved his story. And so the reporter hands Togusa a small piece of, like, film. And, like, I mean, like, um... A tiny little square. Not just, um... Like, 35 mil film. Yeah, 35 mil film. Proper yes. film, yes. yes. Like yeah. film, proper film, film. film. <laughs> and, uh, like, photo film. And Togusa looks at it, and it's it's completely black. There's no... You can't see an image or, like, you know... The it looks like it's overexposed. Anything. Just totally yes. exposed. Yeah. Utterly exposed. So the, re- the reporter's like, well, it was maybe some kind of photo, but, you know, it's exposed because nobody knows how to handle film anymore. And maybe he didn't think the proof was available from digital data. Uh, Togus is like, can I, can I keep hold of this? He's like, yeah, what, what am I going to do with a bit of exposed film? Small piece of film. <laughs> Whatever. Go nuts, dude. <coughs> uh, so then cut to Togusa outside in the car, filling in the chief and all this info. And the chief's like, okay, I'm sending you to Tokyo on your own because everyone else is busy guarding the prime minister. But I'll, I'll sanitize a coma along with you. And uh, Toga something gets worried. He's like, oh, is the, is the radiation going to be a problem? And Aramaki's like, no, you idiot, moron. God damn it. There's been no he radiation so annoyed. since the Japanese just... miracle was spread. You idiot. <laughs> yeah, and then they just move on from this. Yeah. Yep. And it, oh my like, God. Like, oh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> it, it is they... funny because it's like, you know, it makes sense because none of the other members would really care since they're entirely cyborgs. But Togus is just a basic boy. <laughs> So, of course, he's scared of radiation, and the chief is not deal- used to dealing with people who are actually scared of radiation. 
Yeah, there's a couple like major world building things dropped right here. First off yep. is that Tokyo has radiation. That's a problem. Secondly, the Japanese miracle thing we've seen a bit in season one. I think it was mentioned in one of the episodes, which is like an anti-radiation like nanomachine thing. Yep. But it's also kind of uh, brought up, uh, but implied anyway, that the city that they're in all the time is in Tokyo. Yes. And that was actually thing. something I had not realized. Yeah. Yes, yep. they're, they're in the new capital. The old capital is, well, we'll see what happened to it. Um, so we're now in a train station, and the announcer is like, the arrival of the train in New Tokyo, and Tokusa steps off the train. Isn't uh, the arrival see- of the train from New Tokyo? Maybe I yeah, got that I wrong. So. No, no, you're probably correct, yes. If, I mean, that makes sense. Makes more sense, I think. Yes. Yeah. And we're just like, New Tokyo, train New Tokyo. But, uh, let me get some shots of, like old kind of abandoned construction works like completely overgrown areas and then we see the city of tokyo is submerged in water like decaying skyscrapers in the bay you you can only see like the tops of the tallest skyscrapers everything else is just completely underwater yeah there's some cool art here of like tokyo or togusa is walking along the road and like it shows shots out towards the ocean and like there's a lot of like concrete jungle stuff that has been like obviously abandoned and gone for like 10 20 years but there's also like grass and stuff growing up in the cracks so i don't know i just like the art the scene of him walking along the coast here it was oh yeah it it gives a good impression of like the city was gone yeah, and you haven't really seen this kind of nature scenery, like, anywhere in this show before now. Yeah, this city was very clearly abandoned. Um, and most of the cities, I mean, you know, in the capital city is clearly very populated and very modern. <clears throat> um, so he took this rock along the road, he's passed by a truck and a bus, and then the baby comes up in, uh, in camo. And baby's like, hey, if you're worried about radiation, why not get a prosthetic body? And Tokus is like, I'm not worried, shut up. As, as he checks his watch with a Geiger counter on it. <laughs> yeah. The Geiger counter app on his watch. It's <laughs> a standard like, on Android. <laughs> yeah, baby's like, hey, well, you can ride in my pod if you want. And Tokus is like, Fuck off. <laughs> Tokusen is not very happy that he has to work with Itachi Koma. He was like, geez, all right. Uh, so they find the rundown payphone where the guy called from, and there's like basically nothing nearby, just some like boxes in a rundown area. Um, so we end up in like a, a slum area, essentially. We get like lots of shots of very scummy looking tents and people who are clearly very poor. And, uh, yeah, nothing. this is, this is more like the movie. This is say, super yeah. reminiscent of the yeah, scene in the, the movie. movie. Yeah. It also kind of looks like that one episode where they went up to that oil rig, yes, the floating platform. Rig, yeah. And so Tokusa is showing the guy's photo around. No one's seen him. Uh, he mentions that the guy had a brand new prosthetic body, and the first guy's like, no, no one can afford that around here. Uh, but some other guy overhears and asks for the photo, and he says, ah, okay, I don't recognize the man, but about four or five days ago, some someone with a, a really messed up face, and he sort of mimes pulling Pulls his up skin, like, back like, the on right side, side of his face up, so three guesses who that was. Uh, I was uh, asking Aramaki. about this guy. Oh. <laughs> Bato. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and uh, also, there's there's a young woman who is on the lookout for this guy. So he doesn't know who he is, but he he's all, he's been clearly he's guy. pretty popular. Yes. around here. Uh, so we cut to said young woman somewhere else in Bumfuckville, uh, asking some very shady dudes about Koton Kanji, and they're like, "Yeah, we know him." Take you right to him, and she's like, "Okay," and follows them like In, into an alley. Into an alley. Extremely gullible. As two other ones stand up and follow behind, yeah. as she does not notice. There mm-hmm. are now three of yeah. Yeah, we we like cut out to like a far off shot of her walking into the alley, and we see some of more of those uh, men in black agents watching, and then Togusa comes running up, like, "Oh God, I've been looking for this woman everywhere." Uh, spots them getting into the dark alley and runs over. And then we. Togusa has more awareness than a rock and realizes <laughs> something's up. Yeah. <laughs> he sure does. Then we cut to Baby, who's still on the main street, and that baby has been distracted by yet another Cyberbrain box, and he's extremely disappointed that it is, in fact, boring. And it's like, well, that other Cyberbrain's one in a million. I knew I'd never find another movie theater in a Cyberbrain. I know. It was so cool, though. Tachikobo sh- likes just going to, like, yard sales and shit, just. You know, finding whatever's around the dumpsters. Plugging their brain into it. And then she realizes, like a small child who has let go of their mom's hand to look at something fun, uh, looks around, chokes us nowhere to be seen. Uh, apparently they were connected by, like, a string. So like she one of those tried- spider threads, yeah, I guess? Yeah, she tries to follow it, but oh, oh no, it broke. <laughs> so she's like, uh-oh. It's a very cute detail. She had, like, a spider thread to try to keep up with them. That's adorable. <laughs> Uh, back in the alley, the woman's being attacked. What? I mean, no shit, right? Uh, Togsa comes running up. He's got some, like, electric knuckles. He just fucking uppercuts one and <laughs> knocks him the fuck out. And he's like, hey, you I other guys, Togus fuck is off. Like, uh, Togusa at this point was like, I'm sick of being beat up by cyborgs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm getting an anti-cyborg hand. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and just immediately gets the shock knock. It's it's awesome. He's got that Betamaru tech. <laughs> So like, you two hey, better run. That's gross. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they, they they run off and he rescues her. Um so then we're cut to later, we're in a crappy motel room. Tokus is on the phone, checking in with the chief, as the woman showers. Uh so the man is uh called Kotan, you know, earlier. Um and the woman is uh Ruruko Asagi. Uh, she worked for a refugee support NGO, met and fell in love with Koton. They were in a long relationship for years, got engaged, but three months ago they lost contact. But recently she received an email saying, just saying goodbye. Um, so she came to, you know, see what happened. Came to ask about him in dark alleys, I guess. Yeah. So Aramaki tells Togusa to, you know, interrogate her. Keep coughing, dude. She comes out the shower, asks if Kotan is dead, then tells uh, Togusa that Kotan was supposed to leave refugee town, but his body didn't meet the standards uh, for, like, requirements for leaving. It wasn't, you know, good enough, which is... I guess they probably have some sort of, like, you know, physical health thing on immigration, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, America does, Yeah. I, I guess that's not too unheard of. No. It's shitty. Uh, and then he started avoiding her after that. Um, she even offered to do whatever it took to get him a new body, and he, he rejected that flat out. Yeah, she thought he was pulling away, but it might actually be a little different. So Togusa tells her, well, he did have a new body, and she's like, I don't know anything about that. 
Um, Togusa then looks out the window and spots someone in the alley below. I think it's uh, Men in Black, but it's Yeah, it's the two Men in Black guys. Yeah. The most suspicious, oh shit, whoop, you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> so Togusa starts saying that, you know, this, this doesn't add up. Koten was under suspicion of blackmailing the Ministry, and, you know, maybe we thought he came up with that idea to get a new body, but, you know, he already got one, so why blackmail after getting what you want? Um, Ruriko's like, Kosan wouldn't do anything illegal, you know, I'm sure. Um, and Tokusa says, well, uh, it may not have been an accident. We think he was probably murdered and something must have happened during that three months where you, you weren't in contact with him. And then he says we should check out the Flophouse District, uh, tomorrow, and we cut to that. Let's have a nice date at the Flophouse yeah. District. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? It's a nice enough district. Where the migrant workers hang out. So, they're talking to a dude in a very loud green shirt. Watermelon shirt. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Who tells them about a rumor that someone was looking for full prosthetic body workers willing to go inside uh, Yushikan 7. And that if they did so, they'd get paid with a brand new body for, for free. Um, Tosa asks what, you know, what U7 is. And apparently it's one of the, the sunken areas. Um, There's a shot here of the ocean line with like the skyscraper sticking out of it. So it's like construction work out on the coast. Yeah. Yes, it's one of those areas that's completely underwater. There was like excavation going on there. My dude's like, but I never actually heard of anyone who got this body. Like, you know, I've never talked to someone who actually did this or anything. So maybe it's all a crock. Sounds pretty fake. Let's be real. So he yells to the gathered crowd, he's like, hey, has anyone heard about this rumor about, you know, getting uh, a new body if you do some work? And some guy in the back panics and, uh, like, starts this shift and talks to him, like, oh, I'm going for him, and he runs away. Yeah, it's funny, because, like, as this guy starts yelling and hooting and hawking around at the body, Togusa just kind of, like, scans the crowd, and, like, when his eyes lock with the dude in the back, the guy just starts running, which is the most <laughs> suspicious thing you can do. <laughs> Play it cool, dude. Come on. Run, run from the cops. Always a good look. Uh, so Chogusa chases him down, you know, catches him. Um, afterwards, they're sitting in a park, like the, you know, like park bench. And uh, he starts saying, this guy isn't named, uh, I don't think, so. But he starts saying that he wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the professor, which is Kokon. Um, he says he taught me all kinds of things at U7, but, you know, I just worked there. I just did what I told. I, I don't know anything. Uh, he says he was hired by Kuromatsu Electric or something. He's not that's, quite sure. Yeah, that sounds like a uh, shell company. It's yeah. very much a shell company. Uh, and they were told they were going to be excavating an installation that was buried in the war. And they were also told that this would involve a lot of diving, but they had to have, they had to be 98% prosthetic. Um, so initially he was going to give up on the job, but then he just hired someone in the back alley to fake his medical report. Because uh, he really needed the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Togusa then shows him the logo that was on uh, Koton's cyber brain, asked it was on all the bodies. He said, yeah, Koton was like super excited about this new body he got with this logo on it. Uh, he starts talking about, like, how do you know if your cyber brain is real, though? Doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> so you find out that there were, like, 40 of them working there. A lot of them probably faked their body percent. And they were working on descaling. So we get lots of... Sh- this is all... Uh, we see flashbacks. 
of him working in this site. So as he describes what you know what's going on, we see it, and he's like scraping at the walls of the site. Black stuff off of the walls <clears throat> in this tunnel. It, it looks very carcinogenic. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They are full I mean, they even up. say. I think they even say like we're using full respiration and protective gear. And still, every day, the insides of our nostrils would be pitch black. Like, it is nasty shit. That's double cancer, it's baby. It's nasty shit. And at one point, he, like, confesses to Koton that he's not fully prosthetic, and Koton kind of flips his shit, telling him to get the fuck out or he'll die. Uh, but this guy's like, no, I, you know, I need the money. I'm not going to leave. So Koton gives him a radiation film badge. And tells him to get out if it turns black, which now explains the little strip of black film. It was never a photo. And perhaps the lead-lined cyberbrain. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so apparently, like, four days into this job, a bunch of sirens started go off, going off, and some techs were taken out on stretchers. And that's when this dude was like, yeah, I realized this job was, like, actually going to kill me. Oops. And Toki's like... You ran away then, right? And he's like, yeah. But some men in black came rushing in, and this guy and Colton managed to, to get out. But they, as they looked back, they saw that everyone else got sealed in by big steel doors, and they were never heard from again. See, about how, how no one had ever heard of anyone getting a body. Yeah, there was 40 of them on that, on that job site, and only these two got out. It should be um, noted when they were uh, doing this whole scene is in a flashback, obviously, while he narrates yes. it. And uh, while they, he talks about the guys being taken off in stretchers, like they show a shot of one of the guys on the stretchers and like his entire face is kind of like bubbling. Yeah. Like which severe, is, severe radiation burns. Yes. Yeah. Not great. No. And so Koten wanted to tell like the world what was happening there, but all of a sudden he disappeared. Not, not suspicious. That's what happens when you blackmail the energy minister. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they got a hit squad on, mm-hmm. on dial. But uh, so Togus is like, well, I want to get U7 now. The guy's like, no way. But, Not uh, me. The, the widow pleads with him and, you know, he, he gives in. Um, so they go to this like, a building site. You see like a bunch of destroyed buildings in the water, but there's a, there's a military cordon set up. And this guy's like, well, this is new. This wasn't here before. Um, and he then takes him around to like a, a hidden back entrance. But it's, it's a subway tunnel yeah. that they walk shot, into. And he's like, this will take shot, us there. Yeah. Because like it shows on the surface a subway tunnel going down into the ground. And then like the immediate next shot, like after uh, Togusa and Rico go down there, like it shows like the bottom of the staircase of the subway tunnel and then it zooms out and you can see the entire platform is suspended over a giant pit like the entire subway had fallen out below them yeah, yeah. it's really really cool uh, so he's not gonna go in but Toksa and Ruriko do and we see a, you know a shot of another man in black uh, watching them from afar probably one of the ones from earlier mm-hmm um, so they go down a lot of these stairs and the, the extremely messed up subway building. It's like completely destroyed. But of course, when they go in and they're on the platform, like you said, it's like a giant pit and it's this kind of new looking metal building underneath. So like, you know, they, they, they're hiding something in this building. Something. I don't understand why they went farther in than this because they could have just looked down and see what they saw and be like, oh, yeah, we're fucking out. Yeah, some photos. 
yes, <laughs> not get turn cough radiation. Yes, there's men in radiation suits. Like there's a crane pulling something up from the water. I don't know if we get a clear shot. There's a bunch of hoses also just pumping a bunch of yeah. white stuff. Yeah, there's down a lot into of the water. stuff going on, and yeah, there's a definite like nuclear reactor down there because it shows yeah. like the control yeah. rods and everything. Well, and we get the blue like Cherenkov radiation in the bottom of the pool yeah. too. Yeah, and so Togusa like steps on a on a plaque and. Japanese, it's not translated, but I assume it just says nuclear reactor here, idiot. I, I translated that. It's actually where like protective film and equipment, and if your film is black, don't be in here. It's pretty <laughs> ah, much exactly yeah. what it said. Get like, out. don't use use the film to make sure you don't die. And so, yeah, so his his Geiger meter watch is telling him, you know, the radio it's, it's pinging for radiation. Uh, they're then oops discovered by a couple of awesome looking arm suits. They're in the opening, like they, they got the big long arms yeah. and they're kind of like wide bodies. Big army lads, they're very cool, and they're like, "Well, let's run, get the fuck out." Oh no! I don't think these suits are army suits. They look more like construction suits. Like they're kind he, of like multiple arms. He arm calls for... them arm suits. Huh? Yeah. I don't know if that's their name, but the... that's just what he calls them. Yeah, yeah it's like, like trying to mention they're distinctly different than the ones we saw yes. in season one that happened. They're, they're, they're not the but, armored suits with like people inside them with guns. But he does call yeah. it the same name, so it's like another model of that kind of suit. That's definitely a big robot lad chasing them. Uh, so they end up at like a, you know, a, it's not really dead end, but it's like a gap. They have to like jump over to the steps. So Tosa jumps, is like, jump, Ruko, and she jumps while screaming because she's a civilian. Uh, they flee up these stairs, but the lads just, like, jump after them and carry on up the stairs, too. Uh, they then get on the lift, right up. The lads crawl up the scaffolding. Uh, Togusa cocks his gun. Not sure what he's going to do with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he loves his gun. <laughs> he loves his gun. Uh, and they flee into a corridor with the lads just right on their tails. Uh, so they run along this, like, this, it, there's no other doorways. It's just a, like, big metal corridor leading to, like, one door. And they run up to it, and they open it, but oops, it leads to nothing. The door falls into the ocean way below them, like very, very far yeah, below them. Yeah, somehow the elevator that they got in had brought them from below, or at or below sea level up to like, hundreds, not hundreds, but like, you know, several dozen 40, stories. 40 stories up. Yeah, yeah. Like loads and loads. So, you know, they turn, and the arm suits are approaching, and they're fucked. But then suddenly you see Tachikoma drops down and shoots him through the, the door and they explode. This baby. She the uh, suits don't explode. It actually shoots out the ground below them and they fall yes, through the right. floor. Yeah, they fall through the floor. Yeah, that's what happens. And uh, she's like, booyah. And she's adorable. <laughs> I love that they got that booyah button. Boomy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we see like a bunch of helicopters uh, approaching. And we sort of like zoom out. To have a look at the building uh, they're in, and Vegas uh, recognize the building. It's the Tokyo Metropolitan Government Building, basically the mayor's office. Yeah, in uh, Shinjuku. You've seen Shinjuku. this. Yeah, you've seen this before. Like, if you've seen any sort of Japanese media, it's the skyscraper that's like two towers with like one much lower uh, building kind of joining them together. Yeah, so again, this is kind of implying that Tokyo is underwater. Very, very old Tokyo underwater. underwater. Old Tokyo is, yeah, it's gone. <laughs> um, so we're back at that train station. Togusa is leaving. Um, he's telling Roko that you know Kotan was clearly killed by these guys because he figured out what was going on and was trying to tell someone about it. 
Um, he tells her to like, you know, call me if anything happens, and she just she walks away. Uh, we're also we get a shot of a newspaper with a perhaps familiar face on it. Um, as Toga says on the train, uh, explaining to the chief what happened over the phone. Um, Aramaki guesses that they must have had some sort of reactor accident when the techs were, like, hurt. And so they tried to bury everything, you know, not just the story, but also the people. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they, they don't really know who exactly is in charge of this excavation and why it's happening yet. Why though. someone decided they needed to start up a nuclear reactor in secret. That's, mm-hmm. that's a little yeah, weird. underwater, inside yeah. the yeah. old metro building, or the old uh, mayor's building. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Togusa mentions the men in black because he clearly noticed them. Because, <laughs> again, he's a cop. He remembered. Uh, and so Armrick is like, okay, you know, get on the train back home and, you know, full, give me a full report later. Uh, the train starts to pull away from the station when Togusa spots that newspaper from earlier and sees the guy's face on, the worker guy's face. Um, not quite sure what it is, it's all just in Japanese, like maybe an obituary or a missing person's uh thing but it just like you know freaks him out and he tries to call Ruriko but it doesn't answer uh we cut back to the train platform we see the legs of a man in black walking away and we see her clamshell phone she got the razor she sure do uh lying on the ground ringing i'm sure uh, she just went to have a talk with them in the alley looking for her lost fiance because that's you know everybody likes to talk in the alleys (laughs) she's very gullible not for long, I guess. Yeah. Well, they might yeah. just be kidnapping her rather than killing her. I suppose. I bet we'll never find out. Probably not. I don't know if she comes up again. She's just she's gone. Is is yeah? That you're yeah, right. I think she's so gone. The, the plot is going, and we've got some uh, some intrigue building up. All right, I enjoy this. I like this set of episodes a lot more than I like the the first three, which I didn't like very much. Yeah, these yeah. these ones get the plot going, and they also establish yeah. a lot more of the world, so they're kind of fun. And we'll see more of our two <laughs> new characters coming up, and we'll eventually give a name to Kirk. <laughs> if you want to keep calling him that, <laughs> probably he has a name. I don't I'm know if sure it's even does. like if we should even just drop it at this point because I don't think it really means anything out of context. But no, I don't even remember uh, Dirty Nasty Man's name. So Goda, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Definitely yeah. not a bad guy. Him, yeah. Don't remember his name. Yeah, the guy so, with silver hair is called Kuze, by the way, if you just want to start calling him that. It's not like it makes so, a difference. My question to everybody so far, obviously less so Kuvo because you've seen all this before, so, you know, a little less relevant. Um, I guess so mostly Vickis and Serene, how are, how are y'all feeling about uh, the way characters are developing a little more? Because I feel like they're letting the characters have their own individual personalities a lot more in season two so far. There's been a lot less and like just major centric episodes. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it, it feels like they're being allowed to do their stuff a little more independently. Yeah. Like it, it's, there were like individual episodes, but I feel like even when it's not an individual character episode, they, like have little more little character moments between like for example Bado and the Tachikomas or Togusa and um, Aramaki and stuff like that. I just feel like they're going for a lot more of those in season two. Yeah, and I can definitely see. I that. hope that stays that way. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. From a character like writing perspective, I know that like for example, Boma and Paz both have episodes in this season just about them in Psycho mm-hmm. Two. Um, 
But yeah, like I think Togusa in particular gets a lot of just like he gets to go do his own detective work stuff this season, which is He nice. remembers he's a cop in this season? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Wild. We also get uh, some more of uh, Bato's backstory, I believe, mm. one of the later episodes. Also, Togusa gets to investigate without immediately going to unreliable narrator jail. <laughs> <laughs> I like unreliable you can narrator believe jail. Anything Togus, yeah, literally like Togus's first investigation was like mind freak. <laughs> like, how, do you, how do you know if anything he thinks is right? So it's nice they didn't do that immediately. I was like legitimately a little worried when they're like Togusa, you're going alone. I was like, please don't screw up his brain again, please. <laughs> like, Just irradiate his body. He's, he's gonna come back with that symbol etched on his cyber brain, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a cult. I, I guess a question for you guys is like, do you like the political thriller thing that's going on in season two? I mean, we're still very early into season two, but like, there's a lot more like political thriller stuff in this season compared to season one, which is more like philosophical mm-hmm. in a way, even though it mm-hmm. did have its politics. But like, they go real hard into the whole um, refugee but, angle. Yeah, and for the this prime season. minister is actually a character in this one. Yes. Yeah. But I, I, I do yeah. like that Section 9 are clearly a lot more constrained. Like, in, in Season 1, they were basically like, we can do anything. We can get favors from anyone. We can hack anything we want. We're, we're the big mm. dogs. Uh, in this one, they're, you know, they're they're very clearly leashed. And they're being pulled on by the political stuff, which I do kind of like. Yeah, and they can't just, like, go in and do the shit that they're they're kind of used to doing. And Bata was like, definitely yeah, was... pissed about that, which is very funny. Yeah, it's funny that, of the, course, he wants thing... to do all the crimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, like, for me personally, I find all the political intrigue stuff so far in the show to be, it's just boring me to tears like it is absolutely the thing that as soon as season two has started rolling i'm like oh please tell me this isn't the whole crux of the damn thing because it's super boring to me compared to season one but like the dynamic it's putting the characters in i think is a little more interesting i think serene just nailed it on the head with you know they they are now being forced to take a role as opposed to just being a universal like answer to any problem yeah I'm Which also very is, excited about Mr. Definitely Not a Bad Guy because he... He seems great. He seems good. I'm, I'm liking his big antagonist energy, whether he is actually an antagonist or not. I'm, in, I'm enjoying him. I love a smug dick. I, I mean, so good. Regardless of his motives, I do like how like self-assured he is yes. and how... Uh, I, I don't even want to say... He's like, interesting. He it's thinks that, he's superior. Like, yes. yes. He, like, he's very confident about everything but he also backs it up he doesn't feel like the kind of person who says that stuff to just pull himself up like he is bragging but at the same time like it clearly works well, yeah. he is also he's the head of this agency and he's very intelligent clearly yeah, yeah like the, the scene we saw earlier where he was scrapbooking all the newspaper stuff so he's like i love doing this because it helps with my memory so i can recall information at, you know at a moment's notice he's the kind of idiot that would read wikipedia till three in the morning just so he can pull out facts in someone's face in an argument the next day Yes, <laughs> which yeah. means say what you will. That is a good character trait. Like I think that yes. makes him interesting. So that's right. And I'm the kind of idiot who reads Wikipedia till three in the morning for no discernible reason. <laughs> 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 so I can relate to part of. I don't even pull it out in an argument later. I'm just really interested into the largest honey fungus specimen that's ever existed. Wow, it's like 
10 square miles. That shit's huge, dog. It's, it's such a big mushroom. Yeah, right? <laughs> and now all of the listeners can go on Wikipedia and look up mushroom facts. <laughs> and Discovered the largest organism in, exi- in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Learn that mushrooms are more closely related to animals than they are to plants and suffer. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that just creates like the web underground for like miles, right? Yeah. It chokes out huge amounts of vegetation, too. Like, it can kill forests, yeah. Well, time to go read Well, Wikipedia. anyway, those are mushroom facts. Thanks for joining us on our fungology podcast. Until uh, <laughs> next time, I suppose, uh, where we'll be doing episodes 789. Seven, eight, eight, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, space anime. Space Take anime. It